Well, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Uh, we are excited to join for worship here at First Norfolk on Kempsville and First Norfolk on Volvo. And if uh, it, it, at the Kempsville location, let's take a moment and celebrate those who are at the Volvo location. I'll be with them in a couple of weeks and very excited about what God is doing there and pray that God would continue to use His people at both locations uh, in other locations to accomplish His purposes. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3. While you're turning to Daniel chapter 3, I want to encourage you on uh, our prayer journey as a church. Every day at 1 o'clock, we're committing to pray for one minute for one thing. Uh, and this week, I invite you to join me for, uh, uh, for prayer at 1 o'clock. Uh, set it, your alarm, put it on your uh, uh, note cards, uh, put it on your iPad, wherever you need to uh, have it pop up and remind you at 1 o'clock, pray this prayer. Oh God, what would you have me slash my family bring and give for Harvest Day next Sunday. Would you be courageous enough to pray that prayer and then faithful to obey it? Each one of us pursuing obedience to God. See, our desire is not uh, to, for, for you to give more money to a charitable organization. Uh, that's not our desire. It's not even our calling. That's not our purpose. Um, our, our desire is that we, that you and I, would be healthy as followers of Jesus. And health is a product of obedience to God. So I'm going to encourage you to ask God, what is it you would have us give? And then, as he shows you, be obedient to give it. Well, in Daniel chapter 3, we're picking up Again, stories in the Old Testament, this wondrous promise of God's provision of love and grace and mercy and hope through the person of Jesus Christ that we saw beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, following uh, the creation, God made us in his image and likeness, Adam and Eve in, in, the, in the image of, of him, and uh, then sin, Adam and Eve chose disobedience and it led to uh, a diseased life, it led to a crash in their life, in their home, uh, but also, you know, <laughs> if you ever wonder why, uh, why Baptists sneeze, it's so that they can pretend to dance. Anyway, uh, in Genesis 3, sin entered the world, and, uh, and it created chaos, uh, a chasm of death for us because sin uh, separates us from God. And so now we are living in the chaos uh, that's, that, that happened at the Garden of Eden. But God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would provide um, a rescuer who would come, who would crush the head of Satan and bring rescue to those of us captured by our sin. And throughout the rest of the stories of the Old Testament, that's what we see happening. God paving a way with a rescu rescuing, redemptive purpose uh, for you and me lost in our sin. Uh, it led to uh, uh, the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt. It led them out of Egypt through the leadership of Moses, led them into the promised land through the leadership of Joshua. It led to 
kings and prophets and prophets and kings. And it also led the children of Israel uh, to experience judgment because of their unfaithfulness to God. Even though God had blessed them and given them uh, the, the land of promise, and although that He had blessed them and, and provided for them a way of life and direction for living, they rebelled against Him. And ultimately and finally, it led to the children of Israel being carried away in exile. Um, and that's where we are today in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 1, we see that there are four young men that's, that are highlighted in this book of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel and his three young friends committed themselves to live for God's glory even in difficult place like Babylon. They committed themselves to honor God, to, to be different in a dark world, to be pilgrims in the land but not be owned by the people of the land, to understand the culture uh, there in Nineveh, but not to embrace the practices, any practice that would lead them away from the one true God. So these four young men committed themselves to be faithful to God even in the difficult place of Nineveh. Separated from their home, separated from, from all that they know, uh, separated from their church and even from the worship of the living God, uh, they are now smack dab in the court of the most powerful man in the world. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's also one of the most wicked in our history. Uh, he did some really ugly, 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 wicked things. But here are these four young men in Nebuchadnezzar's court and God favored them and, and led them to hold positions of leadership. Um, even though they were foreigners, God favored them and favored their faithfulness as they sought to honor God and be faithful to Him in a difficult place. And it led to heroic action on their part. Now today I want you to understand a couple of things. First, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of Daniel chapter 3 are just like you and me. Uh, they were not supercharged with some um, uh, spinach-like ingredient that somehow gave them superpowers to stand up in the face of persecution or opposition. They, they're just like you and me. And they had the same fears and the same struggles. They had the same qualms and, and complaints. They're just like you and me. And yet, in Daniel chapter 3, we see that these ordinary men did extraordinary things. And what gave them the opportunity, the ability, the, the competency to stand and deliver with such strength and power as we find in Daniel 3? See, here's what happened in Daniel 3, and I'm going to kind of summarize it so we don't read all of it. But in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there and they find out that Nebuchadnezzar has built an idol in the middle of this big open space, the plain of Dura. And, and he's built this idol. He's covered it with gold and it's awesome. I mean, it's ugly, but it's awesome. It's huge. It's glittery. It's gaudy. It's, and it's Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he posed for it, he set it up, and, and his plan was to make everybody bow and worship the idol. Nebuchadnezzar had decided that ah, he was God and everybody needed to worship him. And now, before we get all 
ugly about Nebuchadnezzar, and we need to be ugly about Nebuchadnezzar. Before we do that, before we say, oh, I can't believe he would set up an idol of himself and ask people to worship it, can I just humbly suggest that and maybe meddle a little bit in your life? You really can't stop me at this point because I'm just going to do it. We are all magnificent makers of idols for ourselves. Many times, if not most of the time, of ourselves. An idol is simply anything that we put above God in our life. And if you're anything at all like I am, the thing that competes most for priority in my life, competes with God for priority in my life, is Eric Thomas. What I want, rather than what God wants. Can I tell you, that's idolatry. That's why God hates the abomination of pride. Pride, at its core, is our being idolatrous against God. It's where we determine that we, me, I, am more important than the living God. And we build an idol to ourselves, and we put it in the plane of our soul, and we bow to it, and we ignore what God wants. So before we start spitting on Nebuchadnezzar, maybe we ought to take a little bit of time and evaluate what are the idols in our lives that need to be smashed. What is it in my life that I put above God? Well, Nebuchadnezzar built, <clears throat> built the idol, and, and, and then he said, now when the music plays, everybody has to bow and worship at the idol. And so the music played, and everybody bowed except for Shadrach, Meshach. And Abednego. That's like being in a Baptist church and everybody's sitting down and you're the only one standing in praise to God. That's like being in a Baptist church and everyone uh, being very calm and you dancing in the aisle. By the way, we applaud that, that kind of stuff. Go ahead on. Y'all are kind of, y'all don't know if I'm serious or not. Edie tells me sometimes they don't know if I'm joking. No, it's, it's, like, it's like being here and, and, and celebrating when everybody else is weeping. It, it, you're out of place. You feel awkward. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remained standing and everybody else bowed before the idol. Verses 1 through 7, we see this distressing moment play out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then in verses 8 through 13, we read that they're taken before Nebuchadnezzar the king and, and, and they're plopped in front of him and, and all these other counselors who had really been a little bit jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, they don't worship this idol. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage. And he tells them, if you do not bow down and worship, I'm throwing you in the burning, fiery furnace. And really, the theme of this passage becomes very clear. When faced with the choice of death or idolatry, we should choose death every single time. When faced with an option as a follower of Jesus, as, as one who is uh, living life to honor God, we should choose 
death rather than idolatry. That's the message. And no, I'm not being funny. I'm being for real. You see, we don't talk about that in in our nice, safe seats here in this nice, safe suburb of of Hampton Roads. We, we, we like to talk about, oh, things are hard out there, and you see what's happening in D.C. And, and all that kind of stuff. And we love to scream about how bad it is. But friends, when it comes down to it, what we need to understand is that we should rather die than betray the living God. And truthfully, the price tag for us is not even as high as death. The price tag for us is something as small as, I would rather people say ugly things about me than betray God. Or, I would rather lose my job than betray God. That's a little bit closer. Or, I would rather give up what I want than betray God. But it's that last one that usually gets us. Because again, the idol that we are so keen to make is the idol for ourselves. And so often we would rather please self than please God, which is the very definition of betraying God. So as we look at these three men, what we need to learn is how in the world did they stand strong and not compromise when the choice was between death and betrayal? Between, I'm going to honor God with my life, or I'm going to die. Okay, I die. And, and what about you and me? What is it that we can pick up? How do we stand strong and refuse to compromise? You see, God plant, planted us in this world, not, not haphazardly. And he planted us right where we are, not not, not haphazardly. He, he planted us here so that we might understand that we are here for his purpose. God has planned you to be here. And your purpose is very simple. It is to live for him who died for you and rose again. You know? See, I live no longer for myself, but for him who died for me and rose again. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's why you're here. That's the very reason for your existence. It's not so that you can make a buck. It's not so that you can be happy, happy, happy. It's not so that you can pursue your games or have your way. The reason you're here is to live for him who died for you and rose again. We live for the very pleasure of God. And, and maybe that's part of our problem is we've forgotten that the only reason I'm alive is because I am here to honor the one who has given me life. It can still be hard. And certainly, Daniel, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faced difficult days as pilgrims in a foreign land, living for the glory of God in, in, in a place that did not know God. It, it was hard. It was hard, harder than even the places that you work or play or live. And yet they stood strong. Why? How? 
What is it that can give us the strength we need, the courage we must have to stand firm in the face of compromise? How do we do it? God's grace. You see, the message of this uh, passage is that God's grace is enough. God's grace is enough to give us exactly what we need so that we can live exactly the way God wants. When I talk about God's grace, I'm talking about the grace that has rescued you from the shackles of shame and the pain of your sin. Where you were dead in your trespasses, that where you were destined for destruction, where you were empty on the inside, living the, a life of, 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 of despair and singing a, a litany of loneliness, you and I living separate from God because of our sin. But God in his grace touched earth through the person of Jesus Christ and he provided a pathway for us to be rescued. Not because we were religious, not because we were good enough, not because we earned it, but only because his love made him do it. And he gave us the very thing that we did not deserve, forgiveness for our sin through the death of Jesus on a cross. A new life through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, all because of God's grace. That is grace. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been captured by that grace. You have been uh, overwhelmed by that grace. You have been rescued by God's grace. Because even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. That's the grace. It's the grace that rescues us from the very pits of hell on earth and hell for eternity. It's, it's that grace that, 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 that gives us a song to sing every day. It's grace that saves us, but it's also the grace that is saving us. It's God's grace that wasn't just to get us out of hell, but a grace that equips us for living for God's glory every day. It's this grace that, that, that we need to understand. It's the grace that God imparted to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's the grace that Jesus overwhelms us with every day when we look to him and cling, on, cling to him and depend upon him. It's what Paul was writing about in, in, in 2 Corinthians. God's grace is enough, but how does God's grace work? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verse 8. In fact, you might want to flip over to 2 Corinthians. Really going to hit that one a little bit uh, today. But 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Eat, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, and here's the kicker. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now, I want you to hear what he's saying. He's saying there is absolutely zero things that you face that God's grace is not sufficient to supply the need that you have so that you can do the thing that God has given you to do. 
That's how God's grace works. There is none of this poverty mentality among God's people if indeed we are looking to the grace of God as we should. Don't, don't say, I can't, I can't, I can't. If God has called you to it, then he will provide the grace you need to be obedient to him and do it. When we look at Harvest Day, God, God's going to put a number in your heart and in your mind. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is all about. Anyway, it's, it's about money. And, and God's going to give you a number. And you're going to say to yourself, I can't afford to do that. And God's going to remind you, God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. There is absolutely no excuse for us to say we cannot do something if God tells us to do it. His grace makes up all the difference. God's grace is enough. You flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul talks about his own burning fiery furnace, a thorn in the flesh that he wished he could escape. And he keeps asking God, take away this thorn in my flesh. God, remove the burning fiery furnace. And look at verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Here's what God says. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here's what God's grace does. It's not just to save us from hell, but it is the grace of God to prepare us and equip us and enable us to live each day. So, here's the question. Are you going to live for God's glory or not? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faced the burning fiery furnace... And they said yes to God, no to Nebuchadnezzar, and they were thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. But look, look, look at Daniel chapter 3. You, you look at verses uh, verse 16 and 17. Here's what, here's what they said. They said, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it's the case being thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods, gods nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. They said, no matter what, we're not going to bow. Why? Because it's more important for us to honor God who has loved us so magnificently than it is for us even to save our own life. Now, how did they get the grace to say that? Well, first of all, they understood that God's grace had put them in the place where they were on mission, on purpose. Can I tell you, look, everybody look this way and, and, and just kind of lean into this. God puts you where you are at school, at work, in your neighborhood, at home, in friendships, relationships, at play. God puts you in a particular place on purpose so that you can fulfill your mission. There is no accident that I'm in Norfolk, Virginia. There is no accident. This isn't the will of man or the will of Eric. This is the will of God. He planted me here. God has a purpose for your life. 
And that purpose is not for you just to enjoy yourself. That purpose is to honor the one who has given you life. God has put you in place on purpose so that you might fulfill his mission. Now, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So if you're here today, everybody look this way. If you're here today and you say, I am a follower of Jesus, if that's your claim, then understand you're also laying claim to the fact that you have picked up the responsibility of fulfilling the mission that God has given you. Now, the good news is, is that you're in place right now that God has wanted you to be in to fulfill that mission. You're at the place where you work in order to share the goodness and the greatness of a living, loving God with people who are far from him. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't choose to go to Babylon. God picked them up out of Judah and planted them in an exile to Babylon. They were put in place on purpose on mission so that the citizens of Babylon would begin to know that God is the God of power, the God of greatness, the God of love, the God of righteousness, the God of holiness, and the God, the only true God who should be worshiped. The same thing is true for you. You have been put at work, at school, in your neighborhood, at home, on your ship. God has put you there so that you might display his greatness, his goodness, his glory. And the question is, will you do it? That's what God's grace has done for you. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, all right, so I'm a new creation in Christ. Verse 20 says that we who are new creations, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so God, we're imploring through us, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Understand, God has planted you where you are. Not so that you can just hang out with your religious people and feel good about your religious duties and do your own religious thing. But he's planted you where you are so that you can stand up and courageously call out the darkness and speak into it. The goodness and the greatness and the light of Christ's love. Imploring people who are distanced from God imploring them to find life through Christ. Are you fulfilling your purpose? That can be scary, but can I tell you there's nothing more satisfying. God's grace has placed you on purpose, on mission, and the question is, are you fulfilling that mission? Look, if you're miserable in, in your marriage, if you're miserable in your work, if you're miserable in your life, stop looking at all the other places to, to somehow make up the difference. Start looking to God's grace. See, I really do believe my granddaddy, 96 years old, November 3rd. He worked for four decades at the Aluminum Company of America in East Tennessee. And his job was not glamorous. It didn't have a lot of glitz. It was hard work. It was hot work. It was difficult work. It wasn't the kind of work that, that we would say, oh, that's really satisfying. You know? It was fixing gadgets and gadgets and doohickeys. It was hard work, but he went and he did it every day so that he might be a testimony to his co-workers and so that he might bring glory to God. The question is, do you understand why you're here? Don't you get it? 
You're not here just to get a new suit or a new blouse or a new pair of shoes. You're not here to put more money in your bank account. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but that's not your purpose. And when we make that our purpose, that's why we're dissatisfied. We're bowing at an idol. God's grace places us on mission, on purpose. Who is the person this week that God has put you in their lives so that you could be on mission and let them understand, hey, God can make a difference for you. I mean, some of you are here today and you don't even believe that. And I'm on a mission right now trying to convince you that yes, the only way that you're gonna be satisfied is by being sold out completely to the living God. I pray, oh God, please, by your grace, Unblock eyes, unblock ears, help for us to understand that the only way for us to be satisfied is if we, by His grace, are living on mission, on purpose, as He has planted us here. God's grace places us on a mission wherever we are. Stop pretending like you have to wait for something else to happen before you can fulfill what God has for you to do. Now is the moment. This is the time. Right where you are. God's grace placed you there. Secondly, God's grace gives you the courage to stand up when it's not easy to stand up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to stand. They had to stand. Even though everybody else had bent the knee to an idol, they had to stand. They said in verse 16 and 17, they said, Hey, look, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. Oh, that we would have that kind of courage. The courage that looks even death square in the face and says, I'm not going to compromise my friendship, my fellowship, my relationship with God, even if it costs me my life. I mean, my goodness, we compromise our relationship with God if it costs us a penny or if it costs us a friendship. Or it costs us ridicule. Today's the day for us to understand that we, by God's grace, have been granted the courage we need to say, you know what? I don't have to compromise. By the way, courage is not the absence of fear. It's standing strong in the midst of fearful things. That's courage. Courage is standing up even with shaky knees and being faithful. God's grace gives us courage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had courage. They had absolute confidence. They had confidence that God in his grace would protect them and deliver them. But even if they didn't, even even if they died in the burning fiery furnace, they knew that God would be honored and his ends would be fulfilled. And that was the most important thing. God's grace gives us courage because God's grace gives us Jesus. And that's the key. God's grace gives us Jesus. You see the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And and then see what Nebuchadnezzar says. He looks into the burning, fiery furnace, and, and he says in verse 24, he says, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And the counselors answered, and they said to the king, True, that's that's true, king. And in verse 25, he says, Look, I see four men loose walking around in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And 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 the form of the fourth man is like unto the Son of God. 
See, what happens is if we're followers of Jesus, God has brought us into his family by his grace. And as followers of Jesus who have been brought into his family by his grace, he then commits himself to us in a way that prepares us and equips us and enables us to live each day for God's glory. And he does that by giving us Jesus himself. Jesus himself, he's the one that gives us the courage we need. It's his presence that enables us. Here's here's the thing. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, said, in this world, you're going to have all kinds of trouble. With your friends, with your family, in your neighborhood, at your work, you're going to have trouble. If you're a faithful follower of Christ, a pilgrim living in a strange world, which we are, you're going to have trouble. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Here is our victory in the face of every circumstance, in the face of every burning, fiery furnace. It is Jesus Christ himself. See, Jesus doesn't stand isolated from the burning, fiery furnace. He doesn't stand on the outside watching in. He doesn't stand in the stands cheering us on as we play the game on the field. No, Jesus gets down with us. He goes to the fire with us. He takes us by the hand and leads us in the midst of the suffering and the pain and the sorrow and the fear. He becomes our strength. He becomes our courage. He becomes our victory. So today, as you look at your life and as you consider the circumstances that bring you to this place at this time, trust in the glorious power of a rescuing God, but place your trust in him by clinging to Jesus. As we cling to Jesus, we find the courage we need as we cling to Jesus. By the way, that's an act of grace itself. It is God saying, I will let you cling to me. Jesus avails himself to you and he says, here I am. If you will cling to him, he will help you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Seeing then that we have such a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he was tested in every point, even as we are, yet he never sinned. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might find the grace and the mercy that will help us, help us, help us in our time of need. Jesus is the one who gives us the grace and mercy that provides and equips for us every single day to fulfill the purpose for which we've been created. Will you cling to him? It's not for nothing that we have the 23rd Psalm, one of the most popular psalms. But it's not just for funerals, folks. Psalm 23 is about you and me living every day in the grip of Jesus. This is God's grace alive in us that equips us and enables us to live each day undeterred by fiery furnaces and difficult moments. And courageously stepping forward in, by faith into the path of God's purpose so that we might fulfill the mission that he's given us and talk about how great and awesome our God is. The 23rd Psalm should be our lifestyle and not just a nice little citation that we have when we need it. 
It is a declaration that Jesus, the Lord, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. And thou anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Not because of what I've done, but because of whose hand I am holding. Who's walking with me through the fire of the burning fiery furnace. So that I might display the glorious goodness of the living God. God's grace gives us Jesus who gives us courage to fulfill the mission that God has given us. And be satisfied as we live our lives for him who died for us and rose again. So if you're here today and you're trying to navigate the challenges of this life, lay claim to the truth. God's grace is enough. You're here facing uncertainties in your work or difficulties in your home. Then lay, lay claim to the truth today that God's grace is enough. Perhaps you are just living lonely. Lay claim to the truth and the promise that God's grace is enough. Take hold of this truth and this promise and look to Jesus who will be your good shepherd through thick and thin. Live for the purpose of God and make much of Him regardless the opposition and you will be able to say as you cling to Jesus it is well with my soul would you bow your heads with me please In these next few moments I invite you to run to Jesus I invite you to cry out to him. Perhaps you are trying to navigate through the difficulty of this season. Maybe you have your own burning, fiery furnace that you're facing. You're caught in the cauldron of circumstances that are scalding your soul and threatening your very existence. And you are struggling. If that's you, then I invite you to once again... Lean into God's grace so that you might find the courage that you need. So that you might take hold the grace that will help you. Maybe you're here and you've never tasted God's grace and you need to know Jesus as Savior and King. I invite you to come to Him. Be rescued by His grace. Maybe you just need to stop depending on your own religious works and your own good efforts. And today's the day for you to finally come and repent your sin and place your faith fully in Jesus as your only hope for rescue. 
jump into God's grace and find life. Maybe you're here today and you need to shatter some idols that you've made. In these next few moments, I invite you to do those things. We have ministers who will be here at the front. We'd love to pray over you, pray with you about anything that God has laid upon your heart. We want to pray with you and over you. So in a few moments when we begin to sing our worship songs to the Lord, will you come to one of the pastors, one of the ministers here, let us pray over you. Maybe you just need to come to this altar and you need to do some smashing and crashing. Maybe you need to, maybe you need to cry out to Jesus for help. Maybe you need to come boldly before the throne of God's grace and find the mercy and the grace that will help you right now in your time of need. Maybe you need just need to come to this altar. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do in this moment, understand that this is the moment where you look to Jesus and he gives you the grace you need and you will be able to say, it is well with my soul. Now, Father, as we begin to adore you with song and praise, as we open our hearts before you, God, as you do a mighty work of grace, I pray that you would drag us to this altar to cry out to you for help. Pray that you would rescue those who are in distress and do it by your grace for your glory. Now in these next few moments, be glorified among your people as we worship you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray.